Well, today we wrap up our look at Romans chapter 8, and what has been, as we've kind of titled it, this series, short mini-series, on the therefores of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the therefore of the climax of history, the fullness of time in which the Son of God came bearing our sin, dying our death, and being raised for our justification. So what? What now? What's the therefore? And Romans 8 has given us the so what now, the therefore of it. And we've spent several weeks kind of walking our way through this. And now we come to the climax of this chapter, which is, it's, it, it, all, it, really, it really needs no preaching. We should just read it. I should, we should just say, hey, for the next you know, 30 minutes, we're just going to read this text and meditate on it because it is so rich. Uh, it's so rich. And if Romans 8 represents in some sense like a Mount Everest of the New Testament, um, then the last verses represent this because he brings us also to this question of what now? Well, what's the therefore of the therefore? What is the therefore of it all? And he does this by asking the question at the very beginning in verse 31, what then shall we say and that these things, of course, is everything that just came before it in chapter 8. And we've argued that all of this is in light of the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul now brings us to, okay, so what do we do with it, about it? And so I want us to think about this because he basically presents three rhetorical questions. What can be against us? What can condemn us? And what can separate us? Those are the three rhetorical questions he offers us. And in each of those, I think he's giving us something to say about these. Well, what does the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ mean? What does it mean that in verse 1, Paul jumps right off the bat and says, there is therefore now no condemnation. That's how this chapter began. What should we say about it? How do we leave these doors and now engage in the, the, the trenches of our Christian lives with this amazing, rich truth of, of Romans 8? How should it manifest itself in my thinking? How should it manifest itself in my action? And we saw in our word of exhortation today that we, it's so obvious. I mean, the, the examples in the Old Testament are almost cartoonish that we look at. They're so obviously wrong. Like, you seem like idiots. What, what do you mean we should have just gone back to you? Like, none of us are reading that thinking, you know what? They have a point there. It's like, you know, right? None of us are reading. It's so obviously stupid. They're right there. I mean, God has delivered them again, again, and again, and again. And now here they come, they finally get there. And like, nah, but he can't do that. We should go back. <laughs> it's so obvious. And yet, and yet, we just need to find the application in our lives. The places at which we're grumbling, the places at which we're denying, the, the places at which we're doubting whether or not God's with us or whether he's really going to get it done this time. Now, I know he's done it in the past, but I mean, those are giants. <laughs> giants in that way. And we're all going to die here. And again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, these things are examples. Like you need, it's not the only thing they're doing in the Old Testament, but it's one thing they're doing. Is man, they are just big, glaring, cartoonish examples of idiocy and of lack of faith. And the good news is, it's so, uh, the, the lesson is there. It is so in front of you. The, but the danger is, because it's so cartoonish, and because, and I'm not saying it's not real, it's real. But it, it, it's just in bold, bright colors. It's so obvious, you feel like, it's not you. You would never have made that mistake, except that it was everybody except two guys, apparently. So the chances that you're one of the two guys is slim. The chances are we're in that crowd somewhere. And that's the, that's the troubling. That's the troubling. And so we need to read these stories. And before we quickly say, my goodness, how stupid, we should, our knees should begin to wobble a little and think, oh boy, that's what I'm capable of. That's the levels of doubt 
that's the levels of infidelity that I am capable of right there. And then turn and repent. So we saw the negative there, right? These are people who had seen in, in, the, in the picture of the, if we, take, if we take the story of the Exodus, which would be absolutely fair, it's, it's there for this reason, as a picture and a depiction of the salvation that Christ is going to bring, right? Our great Moses, who in himself is Moses and Joshua, right? Because he is able to lead us into the promised land, whereas Moses is not. He is the greater Moses who leads us out of a greater Egypt or a worse Egypt, defeats a greater Pharaoh, brings us out, delivering us through the blood of the lamb, pasted over the doorposts, except it's his blood. But he leads us out victoriously through the sea. He destroys our enemies and his enemies. Their, their bodies wash up on the seashore. He crushes the head of the serpent, if you will. And now he leads his people by the spirit out into the wilderness where we now find ourselves. Right here we are. That's where we are right now. Right, We're out here in the wilderness. The promised land lays before us. And we're in this wilderness, and the wilderness is a hard place. Egypt was a hard place. It's just that it was a hard place that felt like home. The wilderness is a different kind of hard place because you've been ripped out of that, the, the belly of the beast, if you will. We've been, we've been taken from that slavery to sin, and, and now we're out here, and, and we've got to sort it out. And it's a place of trial, real trial, just like Jesus was led out into the wilderness. And it was not a cushy place out there, right? After he went through the waters of his baptism, he went out before us into the wilderness. And what did he do there? He had to face Satan there. The wilderness is a place of trial, a place of temptation. It's a place of want, right? Jesus fasts when he goes there. Israel doesn't intentionally fast, but they're fasting because they have no food. And they're going to have to rely upon the Lord with his word. It's a place of enemies. Enemies are attacking them, right? They got to deal with these Amalekites or Moabites. But the Lord delivers them, right? The Lord is with them. He's traveling before them in this pillar of fire, and this pillar of smoke. And he's there in his tabernacle, leading them by his spirit out into the wilderness on the way to the promised land. This is our story. This is our story. But when Israel saw the death resurrection story, right, when they saw the, the deliverance from Pharaoh and it led them out into the wilderness, they didn't understand the therefore. They didn't know what to say. They should have known, but they didn't know what to say to these things. So when they found themselves without water, what they said was, why are you doing this? You just want to kill us. That's what they said to them. When, when they didn't have bread, they said, oh, gr oh, now we were doing the whole time. You brought us out here because you want us to die. That's what they said to them. When they got out of Egypt and they were at the bank of the Red Sea, kind of pinned in by, by the oncoming uh, Egyptian army and the Red Sea, what they said to these things was, oh, great. It was because there weren't enough graves in Egypt. <laughs> you brought us out here. This is, what they, this is what they accused God's plan of being, to help with the Egyptian cemetery problem. The, the, the overpopulation probably in the cemeteries. And so he, he brought them out here to die. That's what they said to him. They said, Moses, we don't like you. When they got to Mount Sinai and Moses went up to meet with God to receive the law and the instructions for, hey, here's what we're going to do when we enter this awesome land that the Lord is giving to us. What they said to these things was, let's make a calf, a golden calf, so we can bow down and worship because we don't like the way God is behaving. We don't like a God who only will meet with Moses and who's up on the mountain. We're not allowed to touch it. Don't scare it. Make us something we can relate to, Aaron. That's what they said to these. Things. And when they got to the brink of the promised land after the unbelievable patience and endurance of the Lord, when they finally got to the promised land and Joshua was like, all right, let's go. And Moses is like, let's go. They said, no, no. God apparently wants us all wiped out here because there's a land full of giants in there. And we're all going to get slain. There's no way we can beat this one. 
let's go back. That's what they said to this. So when Paul asked the question in Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to this? We should not take his responses as givens. They, they are givens. They're objective givens, but they're not given responses, right? It's not like automatically like, hey, if you've seen what I've seen, then this is how you will respond. It is not. These must be intentional responses because Israel had seen with their eyes. I mean, they had seen stuff that we read in the Old Testament. We can't imagine seeing. We're, we, we need to take the apostles' words for it. They saw stuff. They saw that when Moses' hands were lifted up, armies were defeated. And then when his arms came down, they started losing. They, get his arms back. they saw bread, like just bread on the ground, quail, like just quail everywhere. And the Lord giving, go, go eat. They saw Moses strike the rock and water come out. They saw Egyptians' bodies washing up on the shore. They saw the Lord fight for their eyeballs. <laughs> and they said, we're not going. We don't think he'll deliver us. What then shall we say to these things? Well, Paul challenges us here. And, and as we take these, let us endeavor by God's grace to be intentional about making these our responses, really ingesting it so that this is what comes out of us because it's easy right now. Maybe not so. Maybe you're dealing with things right now. So I shouldn't say it's easy. But if we're not dealing with things immediately, then it's easy to hear this and the sermon and go, well, no, no, that's great. That's really rich stuff, Pastor. That, that text is rich. You're right about that. And yeah, man, that is exactly the response. we. But then when we're facing these problems, we have to ask, is this what we see? So, all right, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? Paul puts them, I'm going to argue for us in rhetorical questions. And we're just going to flip them around and say, that's what we should. So given everything we've talked about, what shall we say to these? First, if God is for us, who can be against us? So let's flip it around and get the point of the rhetorical question. If God is for us, no one can be against us, okay? That's the first thing we should say to you. If God is for me, then who can possibly be against me? What does it even mean to be against me if God is for me? So our first thing we must say to you is if God is for us, which he is, it's been demonstrated in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? We're in the therefores of that. If he is for me, then no one can be against me. Now, I want you to notice how in each one of these affirmations, in each one of these declarations, in each one of these, what shall we say to these things, Paul is going to drive us back to the cross, right? That, again, that's why I want to make the point. These are therefores of the cross and resurrection. These are not just abstract principles. You have seen something the Israelites in Egypt could never, ever have imagined, and they saw amazing stuff. You think you can't imagine what they saw. What they saw was nothing compared to what you've seen. You've seen this. So here, here's the first point. God is for us. Therefore, no one can be against us. Paul's rhetorical question. You want to know, you want to know why this is true? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Again, put in questions, but we can just flip it around. God is for you, and therefore no one can be against you. In that sense, you have no enemies. I know there are enemies, but they're nothing. And you know how we know this? You know how you know that God is for you? Again, because you can imagine. You can, there, are, there, are many, there are many people who go through suffering and struggle and think God is not for them. In fact, many people interpret their suffering as if the fact that God is not with them. God is not for them. And, and perhaps that's how the Egyptians felt. Again, it's very easy to view them as cartoonish. But just like you, 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 you've seen God's faithfulness. You've heard sermon after sermon after sermon about God's faithfulness. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a dark hole. And now it hits you. I don't think he is. That's real life Christian stuff on the ground. No cartoons there. 
It's the same thing as the Israelites are going through. It's just now. But do you want to know how you know that God is for you? Don't look at the circumstance, right? Because the circumstances may not declare it so clearly. Now, we know ultimately they are, even the, even the circumstances I can't interpret, even as, you know, my brothers, I'm Joseph, my brothers are throwing me in dry well and selling me to Ishmaelite traders who sell me to a man whose wife accuses me of raping her. And then I get thrown into prison and forgotten. And my circumstances make me think there's no way God's, there's no way God, great sermon pastor. I'm sure it applies to some people, but not to me. Even as we think that, we know because of the text last week in Romans 8, that this is not true. We know that all things are working together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to him. So the even, the, even Joseph's circumstances, I know he couldn't see it, but even those circumstances were God's love working in and through him, but he couldn't see it. The circumstances may seem count, like counter evidence. So where do you look when you want to know that God is for you? I'm, I'm telling you, probably not best to look at the circumstances because you don't have the eyes to see. You don't have the wisdom to interpret those circumstances. You, you don't have the ability to do the math, right, as we've said, and work out Romans 8, 28 and go, well, yeah, I can see how in the middle of this dry well, as I'm abandoned down here, oh, it's very clear to God. So looking at the circumstances may not be the best way to go. Do you know where you go to know that God is for you? And the answer is the cross. The answer is always the cross. Paul says, I endeavor to preach nothing to you but Christ and him crucified. You must not look at the circumstances first because you will be lied to in the middle of the circumstances. You will hear voices coming to you telling you God is not for you. This is what Satan does. He's a great whisperer. And he gets in there and he says, I was really for you. It's the way he would treat. Don't look at the circumstances first. I'm not saying don't look at them. Don't look at them first when you're trying to reckon with whether God is for you. Because if he's for you, then nobody can be. Not Joseph's brothers. Not Ishmael traders, not Potiphar, not Potiphar's wife, not the jailkeeper, not Pharaoh, if God is for us. And when we want confidence that God is for us, we don't look at our circumstances, we look at the cross. That's what Paul is saying. He who did not spare his own son, gang, if, if he didn't withhold his only son in order to deliver you, what is there that he will withhold from you? What possibly is there that he will give you if he gave his own son for you? How do I know God is for me? even in the midst of the darkness, because he did that. I don't understand this, but he did that. And if he did that, then I don't know what's going on right now. But I know he's for me. And if he's for me, then nothing, nothing, nothing can oppose me. I have confidence then that all these things, even the things I don't understand, even the darkest things, will in his divine calculus be worked for good, not just my good, but for the good of his whole kingdom. And my role right now is to be faithful and to trust him. Man, I'm looking at a wall of giants right there, and I'm told to go, and I, man, I just, how do I know he's with me? How do I know that he's going to be, I, okay, I saw it back here, but how do I know he's going to be with me as I step forward? Look at the cross. Again, you have something they didn't even, they saw amazing stuff. God and his only begotten son for you. You have seen God take on flesh and die for you. So what shall we say to these things? Well, the first thing we must say is God is for us, therefore no one can be against us. Second thing. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, okay? So second thing we must say is because God has justified me, there is no one who can bring any charge against me because God is the one who justifies. That is because God has already made a declaration about me. He's already given his verdict. And because he's given his verdict, 
There is no one now who can bring any charge. Hence the Zechariah 3 passage. The accuser, as you, you've heard me preach on this passage before, but the accuser, the prosecutor, Satan, which means accuser, standing in the courtroom is on solid ground in his accusation, right? He's not just making stuff up. He's pointing out what's true. Joshua is standing with filthy garments. The high priest who represents Israel is standing there in unclean garments. The accuser is on solid ground to go, he's guilty. Judge is guilty. You must rule against him. He's got us over a barrel. The accusation is accurate. But the wonderful thing in that passage, the angel of the Lord, the judge, prefigurement of Christ, stands and casts Satan out of the courtroom. Now, right there, you might be thinking, well, that's not just. I mean, Joshua is guilty. Why, why are you kicking the prosecutor out? Right? He's making, he's making a just accusation. Joshua is, in fact, guilty. So on what grounds does the judge throw the prosecutor out? And the answer is on the grounds of what he's going to do for this man. And what he does for him is he takes off his filthy garments. He commands those to take off the filthy garments. And then he interprets the action. See, Joshua, not I've taken off your dirty clothes. No, he interprets what the clothes mean, right? See, Joshua, I have taken your iniquity away. That's why Satan can be cast out of the courtroom, because guess what? You're not guilty. And you know why you're not guilty? Because I've taken your iniquity away from you, and I put new robes on you that represent your purity, your holiness, your cleanliness. And therefore, the accusation does not stand. Therefore, the accuser, the prosecutor, has no grounds in this courtroom. Out. Now, again, where do, where do the dirty clothes go? And we don't get this in the vision, but we know the rest of the story. We've got the rest of the Bible. We know where the dirty clothes go, and we know where the clean clothes come from. Because you don't get that in second. But we know that it's the judge himself that takes off his robe and gives them to Joshua and takes Joshua's dirty clothes and puts them on himself and takes the accusation that is rightfully leveled and deals with the dirty clothes. He does what the dirty, he takes the punishment that the filthy clothes, the iniquity of Israel deserves. He takes it on himself. But in light of this transaction, in light then of this declaration, your iniquity has been taken away from you. Look, you have clean clothes on. The judge himself is doing this. The judge himself gave us his robe. The judge himself took our iniquity. The judge himself cast the accuser out of the courtroom. If that has happened, which it has, this is what the cross is. The cross is him taking Joshua's filthy robes and finally dealing with it. And the resurrection is God saying, I'm satisfied. Justice has been dealt with. If that's true, then there is nothing that can be leveled against you. Not one charge that can undo or contradict the declaration of your judge. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God himself who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? It is Christ who has died. He took those filthy garments. Not only that, but he's been risen. He's risen. That is to say that this judgment is satisfied. And more than that, he is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for us. You remember the intercession of Moses? And he makes this whole case before God and pleads. And God says, okay, fine. Just like happened at Sinai. I won't wipe them all out here, but they are going to die. I'm not letting them inherit the promised land. I will forgive them, but they're not going to enjoy the benefits here of the promised land. Well, we have a better high priest, says the book, who is right now at the right hand of the Father, and he is interceding for us. And because of his intercession, because of the clothing you wear, you are able to promise. So what shall we say to these things? God is for us, therefore I know no one can be against us. Secondly, because Christ has justified me, no one can condemn me. So again, in the trenches of the Christian life, when you stumble and fall on your face, 
When you fail and the old accuser comes slithering in very quickly right to your shoulder and tells you how awful you are and how can it possibly be that you could be a child of God and there's no way God is for you and it starts leveling, not heaping the guilt. What do you do? Spiral into depression over your sin or do you repent, confess, and then say to these things what you ought to say? If Christ has justified this rotten sinner, then there's no one who can level it. He knew, he knew how dirty my clothes were, right? He knew. And if he knew and nonetheless loved me and died for me and justified me with his omniscient knowledge of how sinful I am, then all voices of condemnation must be silenced. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then finally, verse 35, what shall we say to you? Put in the form of a rhetorical question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You know the answer to that question is no one. So flipped around, what shall we say to these things? No one, nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And again, just as in the first two, how do I know this? Because of the cross. How do I know that God is for me? The cross. How do I know he has justified me? The cross. Christ has died. Christ is risen. How do I know that nothing can separate me from him? Well, he goes on to tell us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, the sword, as is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're more than a conqueror. None of these things can separate you from the love of Christ. Not because your love for Christ is so strong, but because his love for you is strong. If anything was going to separate you from the love of Christ, it would have been Golgotha. If anything was going to separate you from Christ, it would be the son bearing the infinite wrath of his father for you. Okay, that would have separated you from Christ. If anything is going to separate from Christ, it would have been right there. As Jesus is sweating drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to the Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from him. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen right there. And all Jesus had to do was walk away. And he took the cup and drank it and drank. And he went to the cross in love for you and in honor of his Father. If that didn't separate you from the love of Christ, then let me tell you what. None of these things, tribulation, peril, nakedness, sword, external things, internal things, the fear of death. He's not letting any of these things separate us. Certainly these things will come. Verse 36, we're killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. It doesn't mean, oh, we won't endure any of these things now that we're king's kids, right? We thought about that week or so ago. No, no, we will go through tribulation. We will go through trials. We will go through death. We will go through the sword. But none of these things can separate us from it. Because in all of these things, through Christ, we are more than conquerors. And then Paul concludes with just that wonderful, beautiful crescendo of confidence and assurance. Because these are the things Paul is going to say. Let's put it that way. For I am persuaded, their death, nor life, nor angels, nor totalities, nor powers, nor present, nor come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like Paul is grasping for any phrase he can get and say, not this, not that, not this, that, no, not that, nothing. Find me another thing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, then nothing can separate us from the one who is for us. If he's for us, no one can. And if nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, then nothing can separate us from the one who has justified us. And if he's justified us, then there is no one who can stand to. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the therefore of the cross and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you, and may it be your prayer for me, 
that when we find ourselves in the trenches, when we're standing there in the face of giants who look like they want to kill us, when we're dealing with the whispering serpent who is speaking words of condemnation to us, and we're in the real deal now, when it all goes down, may these be the things that we say to these things. God is for us. Heavenly Father, we again confess to you that our faith, but we thank you that you are for us. We thank you that you are the one who defeats our enemies. We thank you that you are the one who justifies us. We thank you that you are the one whose love tethers us to yourself. And it is not the strength of our hands. It is not the strength of our righteousness. It is not the strength of our faith or of our love. But we love you because you first loved us. We did not choose you. You chose us. Because you chose us, you are working all things for our good. Because you loved us, you are conforming us to the image of your son. Because you loved us, you give us the privilege of knowing there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. So, Father, help us not just to say these things, but to believe them. That when we find ourselves in the darkness, these are the things which would most naturally come to our hearts, minds, and to our lips. Thank you, Lord God, that you are for us. We praise in the name of Christ, your son. Amen.